Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Monday edition, October the 4th of the Toronto Today podcast. Let's start out by talking about the story people are still talking about, and that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's trip to Tofino, B.C. In and of itself, a pretty good idea. Who wouldn't like that sun, surf, British Columbia being where you need to be? Fantastic. But it was on the day of National Truth and Reconciliation, the first one that Prime Minister Trudeau and his office and his Liberal government helped create. So don't you need to be there? We're still debating and discussing that. Mike Layton joins us from Toronto City Council. He weighs in on the Supreme Court decision, which came down on Friday, favoring the province as opposed to the city, deeming it constitutional that the Premier of the province, Doug Ford, a former city councillor, decided to shave down dramatically the size of Toronto City Council and in the middle of the 2008 municipal election, no less. Far Nasser joins us, uh, our weekly Monday visit, Global News anchor at uh, for the Global News at 5.30 and 6 o'clock. Got into a lot of issues, including discussing Annamie Paul and Elizabeth May in uh, the Toronto Star writing an op-ed about her. And um, it wasn't the kindest, to be perfectly honest. Rob Longley on the demise of the Toronto Blue Jays, a 91-win team that misses the playoffs. And we do What Happened When? This Day in History with Dave Bradley. All to come on the Toronto Today podcast. Everyone's got a story about your dad. Very first time I'm on Michael Landsberg's Off the Record. It's with Scott Reed, and it's with another athlete. I can't think of who the athlete was. And your dad. And I, first time I got to meet him, I'd only moved to Canada back from the States. Prince of a human being. I know you know this. I know hundreds of people, you know, on a yearly basis come to you and tell you a story about Jack. Uh, I, I just, I'll always remember how kind he was to me and how encouraging. I was a little nervous going on that show. Um, and Michael Landsberg's a bit intimidating at first, and now we're friends. But your dad was just awesome to me, and I wanted to tell you personally. Don't get sick of hearing about it. So thank you so much for those, uh, those kind words. You're welcome. Friday morning. Um, what are your expectations like going in? This has been a long, drawn-out battle. Anytime something gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, clearly there's been uh, a lot of thought process and a lot of deliberating going into it. Were you hopeful Friday morning? Well, you know, I think there's two tests here. One is the legal test, and we can talk about that in a second. I'm not a lawyer, but there, one was the legal test. And then one was the smell test, right? Like, we're, we're months before an election. Doug Ford did, decides to change the rules of the game. It didn't. It just didn't pass that smell test. As for the legal test, I think some of us were were very hopeful that uh, the that the smell test might muddy the waters a bit, and I think it did. That it demonstrated that um, the you, you can't create and manufacture this type of dysfunction in a democracy by changing the rules partway through the game. Uh, which which was it, it was very disappointing to see that we didn't get a majority opinion, uh, but it was close. And the fact is, like the province. Uh, do have powers over over the city. We just we 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 want to make sure that uh, that in the future the city doesn't get pushed around by the province uh, and into a position where we're spending additional money uh, and and changing our system to adapt to their wants. The fact is, the people of Toronto wanted a different direction, and the elected officials uh, of the day were undertaking it. Um, and unfortunately, it, it didn't go our way. Councillor Mike Layton joining us Toronto today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We had Councillor uh, Josh Matlow on last week. I asked him to sort of walk us through 
kind of the, the chaos and disorder that resulted in the midst of an election campaign. This this would have caused some of that um, a year before a municipal election. But, Mike, when signs are out already, when people are going door to door already um, and, and you got to rezone ridings and some candidates just drop off the map after making yeah, it's a tough decision to go into politics in this modern era. You, you, it's heavily scrutinized. It's take us through that as well. It it just caused such a ripple effect. I I can't even imagine going through it. You know, people make a, a significant commitment when they're in it for their community and they want to run for office. Even where I started with a with with a last name that certainly made uh, made made me of some prominence. I took three months off my job mm-hmm. and and unpaid and started knocking on doors because I wanted to make that investment. You know, hundreds of people did this, and the, the we were trying to expand the number of boundaries so that. There was some continuity with the level of service that communities got, but also so that there was more diversity on Toronto City Council, so that it was more reflective of the community that we represent. And by halving that number in the middle of the election, it, it certainly did descend us into some chaos. Uh, and I, I like, like I feel for all those candidates that were all of a sudden uh, the, the the game, the field, their field changed. Uh, and you have to change your strategy to adapt. And for some, that meant, you know what, this isn't the time that I'm going to put my name forward, but but maybe in the future. And that's, it's really disappointing, I think, because it turns a lot of people off politics. Can the case be made, as chaotic as that was, and as unfair as many people deemed it to be, is there a case to be made that council now runs more efficiently? Or are there aspects that run more efficiently, Mike, uh, three years later? What do you see in the rearview mirror? Sure you go. When you, when you have... When you have less people asking questions, then your meetings may take a little bit less time, right? Mm-hmm. But the amount of work didn't decrease. Just the accountability and oversight did. Because we have an $11 billion budget, third largest budget in, in uh, government budget in Canada. Or at least it's in the top five. I believe it's the third. And, and that requires oversight. We go line by line in these budgets. Well, if all of a sudden you double the workload, the legislative workload, how much time and attention are we all going to be able to spend on some of the some of the decisions that are going through? And that was one of the concerns. The other is access. You know, I was a counselor before uh, the change in boundaries, and people expected to be able to talk to their counselor, to be able to see them at every evening meeting. That that happens, and and that's part of the job that I love. Unfortunately, now it's just impossible. Just last week, I was in the Toronto uh, uh, the Toronto Parking Authority Board, where we were having like debating important matters about a collective agreement with the union around. Um, what was going to happen in, uh, in for the next five years. And I had to miss another committee. I was on the Civic Appointments Committee to appoint a member to the Parking Authority. And it happens all the time with all the councillors. There's, there's not enough of us to serve some of the uh, policy functions, some of the legislative functions, and then also uh, less access with the community. And, you know, when you look at communities across Ontario, they have way more local representation than Toronto. We're talking hundreds yeah of local politicians per member of provincial parliament. Now we have one, one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. The ratio, if, if people break it down, of councillors per, you know, per residence, per potential voters in, you know, Kitchener, London, it's not even close. It's not even close uh, now, now that things have uh, have changed. If we if we circle back and, and rewind the clocks, uh, here's the quote from John Tory in 2018. I didn't take this seriously because I didn't think it was something that was put forward in a serious way. Obviously, that turned out not to be true. What in retrospect? And, and the mayor didn't say much about this over the weekend. I know he accused you of challenging his integrity back in 2018, but 
if you look back on that, uh, Mike, were you more like, hey, I, I just want to know what you knew, when you knew it, and what you said about it to the premier, because you're able to get access to him and, and the rest of us weren't. Well, listen, what we were told is that somebody knew from his office the day before. The fact is we were on our last day of council. We can't legally put something on the agenda uh, to, to debate and to have a, to formulate a position as council unless we have a council meeting. And so by, by not adding something to the agenda earlier, it really did. It, it, it really did get in the way of the debate. And, and I wasn't trying to challenge anyone's authority. Uh, what I was trying to do is say, hey, we would just like to know because the rules didn't change for John Tory. They changed for, for, for the rest of us. They changed for all the councillors. The, the, the rule, the extension of the date for people to sign up to run for mayor didn't change. Uh, so that, like, you, we're, we were, I was asking questions about what this process looked like. Was he consulted? It, it became clear later that, in fact, members of, of, of the Tory administration knew about it prior uh, and perhaps didn't take it seriously. And, you know, some of the stuff uh, Doug Ford says you might not want to take seriously uh, and, and maybe you shouldn't. Uh, but uh, but when it's an important decision like this, you at least have to make sure that uh, that they that that the premier understands your position, uh, whether or not you take him seriously or not. Before the uh, the announcement, uh, before the hearing, I should say on Friday, uh, Doug Ford's quote: "It's the best present I've ever given the mayor." He said he would cut it would cut twenty five million dollars uh, to city council. How do you react to that comment? Well, first of all, it didn't save us anything. And second of all, I think uh, while it may have been a, pre- a present to the mayor, it was uh, a very large disappointment to the people of Toronto who were expecting to have greater diversity in their elected officials, who were expecting the same, if not better, level of service in the next city council. And, and I'm not sure they got that at the end of the day. Like, we do our best. We do our very best. And I think this is a privilege to uh, be an elected official for the city of Toronto. Uh, but the reality is we can't make all the meetings that we used to because they doubled the number of them. Um, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, the ombudsman investigating uh, the clear out of homeless encampments. I know it's something that's been uh, incredibly, um, you know, um, omnipresent on your plate. Same as Councillor Matlow. Um, it's it's something where we look at the video footage of it, even still when it airs, and we all get a little uncomfortable. John Tory, the mayor, said um, an invest an inquiry into the actions would be quote wholly inappropriate. And you're you know we're all looking at at a comment like that, and I'm saying objectively, if you got nothing to hide, investigate. If no one did anything wrong, let's have at it. Um, what do you make of his comments and what, what are you hopeful for with the ombudsman being able to look in in an objective fashion to, to whether things were too heavy handed? So there's a couple different things at play here. One is we need answers to these questions. Uh, the media were held out of some of these encampment evictions, uh, as were the public when, when the fences went up. Uh, we need some answers to what happened and how did it escalate? Because I, I know that many, many city staff people who were there in a, in a caring way uh, but the pictures that we see don't tell the same story, uh, and we're getting reports of what actually ha- of what what could have happened at the event, uh, at the events, and uh, they're very disturbing. And so we need independent answers. It can't be a police investigation. Uh, the ombudsman can cover what city staff did, what we contributed, but not the police. That's a really important distinction. Yeah. The, the motion at council actually says, look at all these things and the police involvement. But now that the ombudsman is undertaking their own investigation, it's really just the police involvement. You look at those pictures, you see those batons come up, you see those hands around necks. Like you've got to, you've got to start to question, are we asking the right question? We did this for G20 when we saw the kettling. 
We, we, we have done it before. It's important that we get answers so that the public can reestablish trust with all the institutions, with police, with city officials. That's an important step to it. It's all working from the same set of facts. And that's what the motion from Councillor Matlow and, 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 mm. and I are, is, is trying to look for. Let's get an independent inquiry so we can have that same set of facts. I'm just going to follow that, too, because I feel like we struggle so much time with nuance and we all think, well, we're all polarized and there's this side or that side because someone might say, well, you know what? Like, it's not a long term solution to live in a park. I agree, but that's got nothing to do. That's got zero to do with Toronto police actions. That's got zero to do with with a policy that's a little more aggressive than it needs to be. I mean, when this story's on, it was on the BBC World News that night as the third top story. And it just looks like it, it makes the great cops look bad as well. The great cops would, would want something to be done about this. The cops that do all the right things and play all by all the right rules would want something done about this. Look, it's a black eye for our city any way you slice it. The fact that we're now our mayor is suggesting we ignore actually figuring out what happened that led us to that point um, is, uh, is, is just further injury. My, my big worry is that we all ignore it and it becomes the norm, right? Like that, that's what keeps me up at night is that we all ignore it and just say, this is just the way it's going to be. I don't believe people should sleep in parks. I'm working really damn hard trying to find places for supportive housing, for affordable housing, so that we can get people inside. I prefer an approach that we co-create with the, with the homeless individuals so we better understand what their needs are. Um, that's not the approach we saw here. That's not a de-escalation that we saw in this instance. So we need to have those answers in order to inform our strategy going forward. Um, but boy, oh boy, we can't have this become the norm that this level of violence that is being uh, uh, that, that is happening in our parts when we're dealing with our most vulnerable residents, people with nothing and who have had lifetime of pain and suffering. Let's figure out a better path. Toronto City Councilor uh, Mike Layton joining us. Mike, thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate the time and I hope we get to chat again. I enjoyed it today. Thanks very much. Uh, co-host of uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6. Far Nasser joins us now. I, without getting too detailed, are you a Facebook person? Do you feel that conflict, that tear inside when... Totally. Uh, yeah, I know. We were just totally. talking about it together an hour ago. It's hard. Yeah, it's so hard. It's, it's ugh, I can't stand it, but it's kind of necessary in our, in our work and, ugh, I don't know, and for, for our work, I should say. I remember when when it first started. I remember I had a boss in Detroit in 07. I can't I don't know if you can remember the first year you're on it, but they're like, there's this new thing and it's Facebook and you guys should write things on it and talk about your radio show. And it all seems so harmless. But this is pre-Twitter, pre-anything. I'm like, oh my goodness, this seems so harmless. I guess it can only be helpful. And how wrong how wrong we were a decade and a half later. Well, I was a holdout. I'm like, I'm not getting on this thing. I'm just gonna this thing's gonna go away. It's gonna be one of those things. It's gonna be there for a little while, it's gonna be gone. I'm not I'm not bothering and then eventually my first program director here before I went to Rogers, actually, my first program director, I, I probably, you know, kept a copy of it and showed it to my wife. I, I had a third email about like, hey, you're not on Twitter. We've asked you twice. What are you doing? Why? And I'm like, nope, nope, not for me. It's not going to. And then and then you get hooked in and you're like, why? And then now I have bosses going, get off it. Get, stop it. Don't interact. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Yeah, it's true. So it's these true, things yeah. happen. Um, two weeks ago tonight, it's really hard to believe you're you're front and center. You ch- you're you know you're uh, you're handling the panel on our federal election coverage. It, it feels like two months ago, not two weeks. And I bet you thought, and I bet we all thought in our business. Well, guess what? It'll get a little quiet in terms of federal politics. But Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, goes to Tofino, BC, on Thursday morning or overnight Wednesday, and it all kicks off, and a ton of reaction to it all weekend long. Um, what did you make of 
of of Thursday and and just I, like I, I just look and I go if there's a day you got to be there and, and you got to show up it's probably this day and it's your day you'll get the credit for it but he wasn't there yeah that was that was that was shocking to be honest I, I mean I saw we, we had we kind of knew about it because we were uh, you know chasing it and we were one of the first outlets to break it so I'd see the emails before it went out to the public and it was just it was it was jaw dropping. It was shocking. I I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, what a, what a miscalculation. What a what a mistake that that uh, the prime minister has made. Um, and I don't know how he thought it could go any other way. That's what surprises me. I mean, this is the day that his government pushed for. This was part of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission report that came out in 2015, the year he was elected. That and he said, "I will do all of these recommendations." Of course, all of them were not done. This one was one that finally was uh, was completed, and then. He's on vacation. And, and you know, it, part of me was like, well, yeah, of course, he needs a break. Everybody needs a break. I need a break. Mm-hmm. But, but this day, on this day, and, and the first thing I thought of was he would never have left on Remembrance Day. He never would have left, you know, on, on, on Canada Day. I mean, this is this is the, the time you need to show your face to Canada and you need to you need to rebuild that trust, which has been such a cornerstone and a priority of the government. So I understand why so many Indigenous leaders uh, must be so upset. And, of course, he had that, uh, he had that call with, uh, with the, the chief of uh, to come to come up to Schwab make uh, Rose and Casimir. So mm. I, I, I'm curious to see what, what also this week brings and, and what he'll say next. But I think you, you nailed it, Farah. There's a time there's a time and a place and they're all fried from from an election campaign. They all maybe even in a pandemic probably all did more travel. And, and I, I got empathy for a human being like Justin Trudeau. He went through some things during this campaign. We all know uh, that he did. No one wants to have things thrown at them or have death threats. And, and all this stuff was occurring almost almost on a regular basis. But to your point, um, when you've already got a community, when you've got a culture, in essence, not just a community saying we're worried that things are just being said and they're not getting done. Wow. Like that's your day. That's the one day that you can't miss. And he did. And the other thing that a lot of people are talking about and people much uh, smarter than me and, and who are much more connected than me is who is he listening to? Mm-hmm. Like, who is he listening to that, that said to him, was there no second sober second thought that said somebody should said to him, listen, this is not a good plan. Right. And even calling the election, right. That calculation of calling the election when he did. Right. Like all, all these things together. Who is around him? And the prime minister has been accused for a long time of just kind of holding this tight, tight inner circle and not listening to a lot of people around him. Um, and, and just a few, a select few. I don't even know who those people are anymore. I mean, I don't know who he's, who, again, I'm not as connected to, to Ottawa politics. There are a lot of people who are, who, who have made this, uh, made this thing too. But, but you know, you, any leader you have in leadership, this is what leadership is, right? It's not just about your idea or what you want to do. It's about listening to other people. Or maybe he's listening to somebody who's giving him the wrong advice. I don't know. But but that's something I'm really curious about. Well, and I, and I have I do think anybody who leads far, right, and and even people in our business, we, we've got damned if we do, damned if we don't moments. Jody Wilson-Raybould tweeted it out the day of, true reconciliation begins with showing up. 
And and I defended like even going out and visiting the two Michaels. If he doesn't go to Calgary in the middle of the night when they come back, people say, "Where right. are you? You've been advocating this. What are you doing? You're 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 a, you're asleep at the wheel." So he goes, and people criticize him for the photo op. And they would have done that on Thursday anyway. But you were there, and you showed up, and you listened. It doesn't matter. You, it, this is not like getting your homework done early, so you can you you know you can have free time and and put your iPod on. You need to be there. Joe Biden can't meet with nine eleven survivors on September tenth. He needs to be there on September 11th, September 11th. right yeah. and, and what one just one more thing to put just just, just to yeah. further this point the one other thing that I don't understand about this whole thing is Kamloops is the, is the first place where we heard about these hor- horrible discoveries that indigenous people knew for, for decades right but I mean for us it's Kamloops that's what a lot of us who are not indigenous think of when we think of you know um, these tragedies because that was the first discovery 250 kids I, I still don't understand how he didn't visit like he has not gone to Kamloops he has not. He said now he's going to go, but but he he never went from the beginning. He went to another another uh, residential mm-hmm. school, but not that one. And and that also to me, I don't understand in all these months why that never happened even before the election. And to so your anyway. point, and to your point, yeah. he's there then. So even if you're doing damage control with your people right. on Thursday, you say it's a ninety minute plane ride. How can anyone criticize us if we go now? Again, every politician will get criticized by some element. Nobody's got nobody's got you know unanimous approval. But if we go on Friday, sir, if we do this, if your family's there, or we do this at the end of the trip before you go back to Ottawa. Uh, uh, that that's a win for us, and you said you'd do it anyway. So so people can't accuse you of not doing something you said you'd do. Totally, totally, and this is the accusation that he gets, right? That he says things, that he says the right things, but you know, actions obviously speak louder than words. So I, I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens in terms of what he says to the public, how he how he addresses this this week. We'll see the follow. Um, I you know we didn't get to it as much today, and I hope to get to it tomorrow. But I know you mm-hmm. spotted it, and and I did too. Uh, Elizabeth May wrote an op-ed about uh, Anime Paul in the Toronto Star. It's really intriguing. And some of the suspicions about what was going on and and some of the dysfunction behind the scenes of the Green Party really get laid out there. This is tricky, right? And and look, you've been a strong advocate for uh, for women in the workplace. You've been an advocate for racialized women in the media. And this is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it's, it's hard to... Qu- Elizabeth May is basically saying, like, my integrity is getting questioned here about what I did and what I didn't do behind the scenes and whether I was sort of playing kingmaker behind the scenes. And she wants to lay a lot of it out. It's a really intriguing read. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, the one thing about Anime Paul that I, that I, because I interviewed her before the election that really stood out to me was she's a very smart woman. Like she is, she's definitely, she's, uh, she's, a, she's one of these people who think like three steps ahead of what you're thinking when you're mm-hmm. having a conversation with them, right? She's, she's very smart. But I don't know how she is with people. And that's, that's what really struck me when I, because I interviewed all the leaders except for, um, except for a tool who wasn't able to give us an interview, but, but, you know, they all, there's this, there's this charisma. There's this, there's this kind of charm. There's, there's this thing you need to have. That's not kind of the, it's not spoken, right. When you're a Mm -hmm. leader. And when I interviewed her, she was so guarded and she was having, she had a really hard time kind of even, she criticized one of my questions. She didn't answer her first three, the first three points that I, I said to her, I said, what are the three top priorities for Toronto? Climate wasn't even one of them. And then I called her out on that. And then I gave her an opportunity to kind of tell me about herself. And then later in the interview, she said, you know, you never talk, let me talk about how I was a diplomat and how I did this and, and that kind of thing. And it just, to me, I, I think she's one of these people who 
in my opinion, just interviewing her again, I don't know her. I thought she would stand out in the debate. But I think, I don't know if she's one of these people that that should be that, in a forward-facing mm-hmm. role in terms of her personality, you know? Elizabeth May was the exact opposite of her in terms of charm. But I also know that I've been in rooms where I've been, you know, a person of color and there's been old guard who have not been happy with me being there. And I'm sure that weighed on her deeply. Yeah, it, it feels like, you're right. If you It feels like you got to go that extra mile to prove yourself. Um, and that said, sometimes mistakes end up being more pronounced. Like I, I, I debate about Hillary Clinton all the time and I was nervous for the Democrats when, when they put Hillary Clinton forward in 2016 and I'm going, Ooh, okay. But I listened to women talk about Hillary Clinton and some of the most aggressive people against Hillary Clinton were women. Some people didn't like how, and, and again, that's, that's men too. You, you, you run for president, you're going to get hammered by a lot of people all the time. And even she wrote in her autobiography about things. Well, I wish I'd done here. I wish I'd gone to Michigan and Wisconsin. I wish somebody in my office hadn't used a private email server that that was d- devastating for me. But there were obviously people looking at Hillary Clinton saying there's a, there's a tone and, and a, and a, you know, a, a, a timbre, if you will, to understanding the electorate that sometimes she didn't get. And it doesn't, there's brilliant women. All th- What Kamala Harris has, for example, um, a relatability, that's something Hillary Clinton lacked a little bit, according to many people. And, and you need that. But I have to say, Greg, like watching her press conferences when, when all of this was going on, when all of this was happening in her press conferences, and you could see Annemie Paul was standing there and she, she, had a different way of speaking than somebody else would. And and, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about in a freeing way, right? So she, of course, had a guard up because she doesn't want to be accused of being emotional or she doesn't want to be accused of being angry or whatever. And you could, you could see that in her. Like she was just kind of like, I have to be really, I have to really watch what I'm saying. I got it. And and, and that's that extra layer, that extra pressure that somebody like her or somebody like me or, you know, would have. Right. So I think that has to be taken into account. But at the end of the day, this was the, this should have been a climate change election. I mean, this was the election where the Greens could have done so much. But because of all this, these internal issues, I mean, we saw the results. It's tricky, too. We had we had um, I know she was brilliant on the coverage and, and I told her so the morning after and she was kind of to call in for a late night for all of you last Monday. But when we had Selena uh, Scissors uh, Siobhan on, I said to her, I said, listen, when someone like you and when someone who looks like you and that it that talks as passionately as you do about politics, when you don't want to be in politics anymore, that's a problem. We got to fix that because we need voices like that. We need faces. We need voices. We need advocates like uh, like Selena in politics. It's <laughs> I'm worried. It's it's such a hard game to play right now. Far we're we're it was already tough to convince good people who are making good livings to do it to begin with. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's even harder now than a decade ago with all the scrutiny they go through. I'll tell you, I was sitting last week uh, with a, my mentor, and uh, she's she was you know in, in head of a bank, and 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 I I was with her and, and a bunch of other women of color. We were all sitting there, it was twelve of us, and somebody posed the question, "Which who's going to run for politics?" And only one, <laughs> only one woman put her hand up. We were all like, "Nope, nope, not me, not me," because it's just. And these are all women who could be very electable. Every single one of them just would get elected. You know, they're they're both all amazing dynamic, and they have that you know quality where it's like you know very relatable that kind of thing and brilliant. And and none of them, nobody wanted to run, Greg. I mean, <laughs> it's it's really hard. It's just it was it was. It's, I'm 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 smiling and laughing, but it's it's horrible. I mean, it's horrible to think that there's a whole demographic of people who wouldn't be at the top. We know change trickles down mm-hmm. because of of what they would face. 
you know? Yeah. I, 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 everything you said, and I said about anime is fair. What I worry about is for a young girl watching her, it's eminently discouraging when they say, well, mom and dad, why is this person stepping down? Why didn't, why didn't this work? Cause, cause you should try it again. And that's the, that's the biggest thing is like, it shouldn't have any impact whatsoever because it didn't succeed for her. Same as Hillary Clinton. That shouldn't discourage a, a little girl from running for president because maybe that wasn't the right person in the right time and all that other stuff, all those circumstances. But that doesn't mean you don't go back to the well. And I, I hate that people could potentially be discouraged by it. Yeah, but it's still, it, it, you know, I still, it, it was the one storyline of the election that I kept telling my daughter. I was like, mm. well, she's the first black woman. You know, it's still a point of pride in that way, but you're right. It's, it, she's not going to be the last. And it's unfortunate that, that this is how that, that story had to end. Bar Nasser, uh, uh, Global News 530 and 6 with our good friend also, Alan Carter. Uh, thank you very much for coming on this morning. We'll talk next Monday. Thanks. Okay, see you then. Bye. Got it. Bar Nasser uh, joining us on uh, Toronto Today. Uh, from James, James writes, I wanted the Blue Jays much back earlier. Also, the Yankees sweep in mid-June in Buffalo with an almost all-Yankee crowd was a low point that could have changed things. Wish everyone could have made it happen sooner. I had to look that up. As James mentioned, that they fell to 33-34 and 34 on Thursday, June 17th. Uh, I mentioned it. They were an under 500 team. This team, under 500, in home games before they came back. They were 22-23 and 23 in Florida and uh, upstate New York in Buffalo. And, the, and look, those communities were gracious hosts. It was great for those people to see Major League Baseball. But it's not where the team belonged. And if high-level talks started happening on June 1st and the team didn't come back till July 30th, Remember again, June 1st, we couldn't play golf or tennis here in this province. That would have sent quite the mixed message among mixed messages if the Rogers Center is open for baseball and uh, and you can't go uh, and play nine holes uh, with your grandpa or your dad or someone like that or your partner. Rob Longley from the Toronto Suns covered the Blue Jays all year long. You know, when I lay that out and, and that listener says that, you saw what the quote-unquote home atmosphere was like in Florida and, and Buffalo. It's really hard to believe, Rob, that two or three weeks more of home games uh, doesn't push the Jays well past 91 wins. It just is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Greg. I mean, we saw just, you know, with their record at the Rogers Center after their return. But, you know, the players really felt it. Um, They felt it on a number of levels. Obviously, the emotion from the crowd. Uh, Initially, only 15,000, but they sounded more like 30,000. And then through the final week of the season, the 30,000, Sounded legit. I mean, it wasn't the 50,000 we saw back in 15 and 16, but it was a legit home field advantage. And I, th- I think the players really thrived on it. But but more than anything else, it, you know, they finally felt that they had a home. Um, Dunedin was, I mean, not only were they displaced by playing in Dunedin, it was like the lowest level of minor league ballpark. And mm-hmm. and, and it really was difficult. The winds were, were difficult there as, as they get once you get into, into uh, April and May. Um, Buffalo was a little bit better. There was some familiarity from, from having been there last year, and it's closer to a big league facility. The Jays put a lot of money into it to, to uh, make sure it was closer to big league standards, but it was a minor league ballpark, and it was their second move of the year. So they finally got back home to Toronto. They finally had a home field advantage, and, and they thrived upon it. And yes, one, two, three more weeks of that. I mean, how many more wins would they have had? I know, Rob, people dig in on on the bullpen, and it sure wasn't good early on, and especially in some of those Dunedin losses. But for me, that's where that's where crowds are massive factors. It's like the last five, six minutes of an NBA game, and, and we know all about that here in Toronto. That's where your, your bullpen guys can become emboldened by starting an inning properly, and the crowd rises to their feet. They had none of that, so minimal, uh, minimal amounts of that in, in Dunedin and Buffalo. Yeah, and it was certainly a factor with the bullpen for sure. I mean, the bullpen... 
people when they're doing their autopsies on this team today, they're really going to look to to the struggles that that the relievers had. And you know, I'm not so sure how much I want to play that game. I mean, obviously they they struggled at, at key points of the season, but there were so many factors that they were a part of it. I mean, some of the guys were injured. They 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 signed Kirby Yates to essentially be their closer, and he never pitched a game for them. And then the whole sticky stuff came out, and we don't know how, yeah. how much that affected three or four guys in that bullpen. Um, it affected some teams more than others. Uh, they were certainly, uh, you know, there was certainly a number of games that were thrown away by that bullpen. But you know, for a large portion of, of, that, of the season when they struggled, they didn't have the proper arms in there to do the job. So I'll ask you about Ray and Semyon in a bit. But is this is this reminiscent of sort of a, a relighting of of the match that 2015 was? I know it didn't go deep into October. It doesn't go to a game, you know, a coin flip game six of, of the ALCS against Kansas City. But next year, and again, we all want to be in a much, much better COVID place in, in April of 2022, but um, are, are tickets hard to get for? Are there sellouts? Are they drawing 35,000, 36,000 a game at, at Rogers Center? How reinvigorated is, is the city after, after a few down years before COVID? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, you know, all things being equal and all being capable of doing those types of things. I think the Jays will be a big hit next year. And I think it's, it's, uh, you know, there's even more, much more reason actually to be optimistic than what we saw after the 2016 season, because at that point it was, how do they keep the band together? Now I realize Ray and Sammy and her big question marks in, in the current band, but mm. the foundation with this group of blue Jays is, is much more solid than it was in 2015 and 2016. You've got Vlad and Bo and, and Teoscar Hernandez here for uh, the foreseeable future. You've got George Springer for another five years. And you've got guys in the minor leagues coming up. So, I mean, I think in terms of sustainable success, we may be entering the best era for this franchise in its history. I wondered about that because I think this group, Rob, I was thinking about it last night. It reminds me more of that era around, and this is our older listeners will go, will dial right in on this, but but it reminds people of where they started to get to around 84. Okay, can't catch the Tigers in 84. That's understandable. That group was 35 and 5. But then they win 99 games and win the division. And then they're good every year after that. And did they have to tweak and bring in a lot of hired guns and 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 spend a lot of free agent money to win those to put them over the top in 92 93 sure they did um but but it's more like this group and that group right bell mosby barfield in the outfield willie upshaw tony fernandez um that you know people really dave steve obviously people really dug into that group and and was a, that was a group you could you could grow old with this group feels exactly like that well that's a really good point because if you look at the entire history of the Blue Jays franchise, that was the one big decade, basic, basically, right? Like you mm-hmm. said, 84 to 94 or 95. And in the interim, there have been a lot of lean years. Since 1993, only two teams, two Blue Jays teams have won 90 games or more. And, and one of them is the one we just saw finish the season with 91. Um, there were a lot of bad years of baseball with the Toronto Blue Jays. And, you know, they, they, had, they, they built 2015 and 2016 to have some success, but it was never going to last, really. Um, it was, I won't say smoke and mirrors, because they, it was more of an all-in uh, scenario with Alex Anthopoulos for those two years. But the current management group, for all their faults or, or all the criticisms people want to direct their way, they were determined to, to build a, a, a foundation that was going to last. And, and I think that's where we're at right now. You're still going to need the big, big free agent uh, pieces at, at, at various points. And obviously, they're going to need pitching next year. But 
there, there is a foundation there, and I, and I think it, it most certainly looks like it's built to last. Rob Longley, the excellent baseball writer from the Toronto Sun, joining us on Toronto today. I got about 45 seconds, Ray and Semi, and then is one more likely to stay? And I'd ask you this also. You got any nerves about Robbie Ray? He's never done this before. He's never come close to being this good a pitcher uh, prior to this. One year in Arizona, about four years ago, but... He's gonna. Someone's gonna cash in on on him. He's gonna cash in, but it's it's got its risk. Given Robbie Ray five or six years, it does. Yeah, uh, both guys are gonna get paid for sure. But it, it's it's interesting you mentioned Ray because I was speaking with somebody about him the other day, and 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 this person wondered if maybe this was it for Robbie Ray. Was this his best year? Um, and 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 can he sustain that for for many more seasons going forward? He's what they call a max effort guy. I mean, that guy throws hard. He throws through a lot of innings, pitched a lot of games, and he was great. But by the end of the season, his fastball wasn't quite what it was early in the season. And do you really want to sign a guy like that? He's only 30 years old, but do you really want to sign a guy like that to a five or six year deal? And that's what he's going to get. Scott's risk to it. Rob, great uh, coverage all year. I'm sure we'll be talking as a uh, hot stove heats up. Thanks for doing this for me. Always a fan of your work. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. I'll start here because I think we reviewed, I think we reviewed as best we could what happened Friday with um, the path to reconciliation and the first national day of truth and reconciliation. I think we addressed a good chunk of the issues there. And uh, I do wonder whether it's been an overstep upon some with the Liberal Party to explain and excuse where Justin Trudeau was, what he's done or has not done since then. But it struck me there was a real rift, and two things came out of that rift over the weekend that I'll lay out. One, um, it's quite obvious, patently obvious, that there's skepticism, and there was to begin with, about people being used in this process. And what I mean by that is there's too many Indigenous chiefs there's too many First Nations leaders that are incredibly skeptical that they're being utilized and that this is about something to say as opposed to something to do. And boy, this is a struggle, right, for the Liberal Party. If you believe in Liberal Party principles, if you voted for the federal Liberal Party two weeks ago, you know that this is a struggle. Is that I get that that's your guy, and that's the guy that broke through. Stefan Dion couldn't do it. Michael Ignatiev couldn't do it. And was the time and clock running out for Stephen Harper? It runs out for everybody. Okay. The people always eventually change their mind about who they want as leader. And we talked about that so much during the, the election campaign, didn't we? That Brian Mulroney could see it in 1993. And Jean Chrétien could see it after the turn of the century. And, eh, you know, Stephen Harper, I think, had a sense of where it was going to go. He would have loved to have win one more election the same way Justin Trudeau may want to win one more election. But what I heard over the weekend was that this is a clear and distinct sign that this is not going to we're not going to see Justin Trudeau run in another election. And it's weird to start talking about that already. Ten days after an election win. Ten days after holding holding what he had in essence. Not, not a lot of gains. Not a lot of losses. Voting percentage about the same. I think perception of him about the same. Or if not, why would there not be more of a sea change in terms of votes? Why would there not be? And I get that COVID factors in there. We'll talk about the throne speech provincially this morning. There are some people that think Doug Ford and the conservatives are 
dead men and women walking next election in June. There are some that think they got too much of an, of, a, of an advantage right now. They're getting you and getting me through COVID. COVID is going well in Ontario. Hey, let me say that again. It's going well right now. So will you remember that it didn't in December and January? Will you remember that you were inconvenienced? And, uh, and we went through some, I think, really dark times in April and May. Will you remember those things? Or will you just remember, you know what? Trudeau and Ford both sit on a, uh, a you know, a platform of, of noting that they got you, they would get you vaccines and they would get you vaccinated. Well, they did both those things. They really, really did. It's really difficult to criticize now. You won't get me. I know, I know things were disorganized here and there. I know we had to have things like vaccine hunters helping provincially find out where to go and when and, and when to do it. Of course, there could have been changes in the lineup. And I, I laid that out a lot about when New York, New York State was my constant comparison on the show uh, in this time slot and, and when I was doing Saturdays, is pointing out that New York State was uh, able to delineate and say, you go first and then you go and then you go and then you go. And it all made some sense. Of course, you can debate the running order of, uh, of, of how vaccines should go and who should get whether group A should get them before group B. Of course you can. But for the most part, the federal government said we're going to get you the vaccines. And after, you know, a wobble or two and, and a, a little more, you know, hesitancy and waiting, excuse me, hesitancy from the from the federal government. We're sitting there in March and we're waiting on this. And then the AstraZeneca, not great, not a great era if you remember the, the debates and misunderstandings about AstraZeneca. But when it comes forward to this, so my point about about incumbent officials, incumbent elected officials is they've got a bit of a break with COVID. They're not going to get hammered out of office because you just don't know how somebody else is going to handle it. What the Trudeau liberals did brilliantly is suggest you, you might have been a lot worse off with Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives running the country during COVID-19. And you don't know, and I don't know quite how to defend that, you know, that concept or take umbrage with that concept and criticize it and debate it. Similarly, it's the easiest thing in the world to sit as the opposition party right now as the NDP in Ontario and say, Doug Ford didn't do that. Doug Ford didn't get that. Doug Ford hasn't done this, this, and that. Some of it's true. And some of it is immaterial. It's just immaterial to most people. Have you kept me afloat? Did you get me vaccines? And and what else is there? What else is there going forward and, and walking that path of getting out of this pandemic? Now, totally different story over the weekend on the Thursday. And I will read you a like a full text a little later on in the show of somebody who's used to work pretty high up in the federal government, but they didn't want to go on on the record with how they felt about Justin Trudeau and the Tofino trip uh, and everything. And Roseanne Archibald had some thoughts on it on the West Block yesterday with Mercedes Stevenson. Now, um, th there was a suggestion, and I'll get to that after this clip, from Roseanne Archibald about how the media should frame where Justin Trudeau is and what he was or wasn't doing these last four days. And I'll get to that quote as well, and then let you react to it via text. But but it it it, it went more up about the interview went more in this clip about how Roseanne Archibald, the uh, First Nations National Chief, 
saw the day of truth and reconciliation. And she makes a really good point about how, look, sometimes people will say, well, words matter, words matter, change this word, change this word. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes you just roll your eyes. You roll your eyes because we can overdo it. Of course we can. What we're all, we're, we're not overdoing anything in terms of that concept? Well, no. But she makes a good point about calling them residential schools near the end of this clip. I want you to hear. I want you to think about it. This is Mercedes Stevenson with uh, Chief Roseanne Archibald. It was a really difficult day, and it's a difficult day for survivors. And we have many survivors still who are alive and living in communities. And it's a difficult day for them because they become re-traumatized. And, uh, you know, they have to deal with some uh, complex emotional fallout from being in those institutions of assimilation and genocide. And so I spent the day up here in uh, the interior of BC at Tukamlitsishwakmik, uh, was invited by uh, Chief Cookby Roseanne Casimir in the summer, promised her that I would come back for this, this honoring of survivors and intergenerational trauma survivors. And so I was really happy to be able to come up here for the day. In terms of my family, though, just to continue, um, I do have, I did share a personal story on my social media, and I also shared it at the event. And, you know, this is not ancient history. Eight members of my immediate family, including my parents and my siblings, went to institutions of assimilation and genocide. I don't call them schools anymore because no school that I ever went to had a graveyard. I was the first in my family to not be forced to attend. And so I want people to know that even though this was over a hundred years of government policy that created these institutions, the last one closed in 1996, which wasn't that long ago. A long clip, but I thought that context was really important there uh, from Chief Archibald. I've got a lot of thoughts on the Trudeau trip um, on Toronto today, today. And, uh, there was a lot of chatter about it over the weekend. And I'll redo this quote. This is a former federal policy advisor via text. I put it into a, a brief um, thread on Twitter yesterday. If you want to find me there, I'm at Greg Brady T.O. Um, here's what they uh, end up writing. Even if you've messed up about the prime minister, even if you've messed up and not taken September 30th as seriously as you should, even if you thought you could, quote, finish your homework the day before and didn't, quote, read the room. Tofino's in the same province as Kamloops. You're the Prime Minister of Canada. You said you'd put Indigenous issues at the top of the ladder. When you leave Tofino, you stop in Kamloops and you visit with elders. You visit those unmarked graves. Then how can you be hammered for not putting the time in? But he didn't. And it's the maddening cycle of how the Prime Minister operates. It makes his MPs, his aides, his closest confidants all look bad because surely they talk him out of this. But they either don't for fear of retribution or they do, and he doesn't care. And that was the end of that particular message. Your thoughts on that, where it goes for the prime minister now. He had an opportunity. Everybody has an opportunity, right, to pick yourself back up after you make a mistake and, and make good. And people will always question the make goods. Of course they will. And in politics, they're going to question it times five, times 10, times 20, what that make good was. But there wasn't any of that this weekend. And an apology on in a phone call to a uh, to a you know a, a First Nations leader is not the same as stepping in front of a microphone and apologizing to all Indigenous people, and they deserve that. 
What's to lose at this particular point in time? Oh, well, he's just saying things. Well, you're Chief criticizing Siddiqui, him for Rob not Travis saying and Dave Bradley joined okay. me. We kick around something that, uh, that popped recently in today's headlines or something from our own lives. Uh, Sheba, 60 Minutes uh, ran a clip last night, ran a big segment on a Facebook whistleblower. She was a former product manager uh, high up in the company. And uh, she decided to go public her first interview last night, and she put out tens of thousands of pages of a bunch of research and documents that led to a bit of a firestorm. So uh, a lot of people were watching it last night to see what she said and and the tone of it all. And uh, it's it's got it. Facebook is that conflict, right? It's that conflict for a lot of people debating. I get something out of it, but what am I contributing to? I completely agree with you. And I actually saw this online trending last night. I, I listened to it and. Let's go to it. Nothing that she said actually surprised me. And one of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement or reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, People will spend less time on the site. They'll click on less ads. They'll make less money. Is anybody surprised? No, um, but it's it's tricky. I, I know it's a conflict for a lot of people. Like like Dave, there's a lot of people that utilize Facebook. I, you know, w- one of the things I think there isn't pressure to do here at Chorus or Global is, but there there has been in the past, and there is at other companies is be on Facebook, mm-hmm. be promoting what you do on Facebook, have a Facebook live chat, and and I've been in those environments before, and it's like. Some people have a real conflict of interest. Some people think it should be only for personal reasons, yeah, but true. Facebook looks at Facebook looks at us a lot differently than we look at them. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, it is a business, and it is trying to make money off of us. But I know of uh, several people that I've worked with and continue to work with. They have two accounts. They have a personal account, and they have a professional account. So they can sort of separate that. But uh, I agree wholeheartedly with what she had said, is that if you see a divisive post... And then just look at the number of comments that come in after that. And and some people just say, I'm here for the comments, you know what I mean? Like, I like reading all of this stuff. It just creates an argument. It creates that engagement. And, of course, Facebook's going to love to see that because more people get involved and, and you spend longer. You keep checking back. I wonder what's going on with that argument now. And, like, Rob and Sheba, I look at this, and I, I watched that documentary, The Social Dilemma, on Netflix. I think it was, like, mm. kind of a pandemic documentary, and they kind of fictionalize some aspects. There's two arguments to me. One is, how much should your teens be on social media because it affects their mental health, and you don't want them feeling bad about who they are, who their parents are, their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's just Facebook, right, Sheba? And it's the it's the it's bad information, and heaven knows when – Every bit of information now affects all of us when it comes to the pandemic and health. It's it's bad news. I don't care what a lot of people do. Of course, they have a greater concern about what people do um, in their own lives. But now it affects all of us getting back on track here and, and picking up some of the things that we used to love. And if bad info is out there, especially medically, uh, it's disastrous. It has been. Uh, I've seen through this entire pandemic. I mean, I have 60, 70, 80 year old aunts who are on Facebook sending me articles and, you know, news and information that is just so off the mark. And it, I just find it really dangerous. And they get into a frenzy and they sensationalize everything. And I just call it their Facebook news. I'm like, anybody who gets their news off of Facebook, I just, yeah, you, you got to go to a, a reliable source, a credible source. 
Rob, I know you were saying you were tired of hearing from Sheba's aunts and uncles. I have no yeah. idea how they got your how <laughs> they got your algorithms and got a hold of you and added you as a friend. But still, like yeah, like I mean, you can block them. I think it's possible. I don't know. It's kind of awkward. I didn't want to. <laughs> but but I like that. I think a lot of people like we're saying it's like watching an, uh, the aftermath of an accident, right? It's like rubbernecking. It's still the and we we got in such a mode where we felt it was wholesome and it was somewhere to you know somewhere to share information, mm-hmm. share photos, you know, catch up with with other people. It's funny because when you rewatch the movie, you're like, oh, it was two guys like who just decided, well, we want to rate hot girls on our campus. Yes. So it kind of started from nefarious. I mean, yes, people will always. You know, college students will be college students, but but it kind of started from a bit of a nefarious place, and now look where it is. You know what, though? There are some good aspects to Facebook. It's not all bad. I mean, I, I'm part of some groups that, you know, one day I was just like, I'd like a different kind of beer. I, I want to try it. So I'm like, what's a good brand of beer that I should try? And I got like uh, uh, probably a dozen recommendations that I've tried a lot of them, and, and they're great. They're spot on. So, I mean, in that case... Facebook prove valuable. You do get answers, yeah. Like if you know my dishwasher's making a hum. Well, I'll tend to do that more on Twitter. I'll be like, my dishwasher's making this sound. What's wrong with it? But I'm not. I'm not active on on Facebook. I know my like my, my wife's on there from time to time, but she feels the same kind of pull and and tug and conflict of it, right? Like like well, I think if you can find the right way to use it, like the way that you're using it, Dave, I do the same thing with like new hiking trails, right? So it does foster that sense of community, and I am part of the mom groups, and those mom groups, they can be very informative, but they can also be very vicious. So I mean, it really depends on what's going on, and, and the minute something happens, especially you know related to schools and kids. It's just on there and there's a huge debate and there can be a lot of mudslinging, but if you dig through all that, you can get some good information. I was just thinking about the lifespan of these things on the weekend. Like for a lot of people, Facebook has been dead for years. Yeah, it's true. A lot of people have shifted over to Instagram if they want sort of that, that social media. Even that's, you know, passe now. It's like TikTok or maybe we don't even know what the new one's called, right? It's interesting. It is, and I just feel like they all have their own, um, like you you brought up mental health, right, Greg? Yeah. I think that it really does affect me. It's not just teenagers, it's adults too. I oh, see it. Sure. I mean, I was I got off Instagram years ago, but I have friends who are on and they'll call me afterwards and be like, oh, do you see so-and-so and she looks so good now and this person's doing that? And they sound horrible. And I'm like, why are you on there comparing yourself and your life and your lifestyle to somebody else. Like, go do something. Go do something healthy, good for yourself. I just, I find that social media, and I am on social media, I, it's just toxic. Well, and some of the some of the stuff, yeah, you roll your eyes at all the positive stuff's being shared, and you're like, your life can't be that great. There must be moments. You're just, this is the best thing, this is the best. But some of it, some of it is, is, I think, is oversharing. Like, what's a private moment anymore? And it's not for me to, t- everybody handles their stuff differently, but it's just amplifies. Like, what's a private moment where you sit there and say, this is for me, this is my story to share with the people closest to me, and that could be anything, like a like a like a medical diagnosis or or a job loss or a breakup. But boy, do people get out there with the? Pro- I'm shocked what some people share personally. Mm-hmm. They use it as a journal or a diary. It's a journal or a diary. That, uh, among U.S. adults, here's the stat: seven and ten say uh, seven and ten U.S. adults say they use Facebook uh, daily. Half of those seven to ten, so thirty-five percent. Do several uh, times a day. Thanks very much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show tomorrow, as we are all week, 5.30 a.m. until 9 a.m. right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Wherever you found this podcast, if you're able to subscribe, that's fantastic. Able to rate us, give some comments, what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, even better. Thanks again for listening.